Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. a lover, or even a husband or two over the course of one's life can be vexing, but to lose one's teeth is a catastrophe. Hello all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today uh, is a friend of the pod, alum of the pod. I'd call her a fan of the pod, but the truth is she's probably not. (laughs) But she's a fan of me, and that's all that matters. I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> I know. I just put baby in a corner. And also, that was completely on the fly. I did not even plan ahead to just entrap you like this. Please Gosh, welcome back. so witty. I, oh, God. I'm witty. I'm twitty. I'm gay. Uh, please welcome back Miss Charlotte Mulby. Hello. I'm so excited. I'm so uh, excited. I am. Charlotte. <laughs> I'm so excited, too, because what Sondheim musical are we discussing today? Oh, we're talking about a little night music, and I have such things to say. As do I. Um, Before we get into it, I just want to say right up front, guys, uh, this musical is just the tits. I think it's the fucking tits. It's the tits, it's the tats, it's the toots, it's the bats. It is all of the things. I've always loved this show, but, you know, it was one... Over the last couple of years, I can't say that I gave it as much thought as I had, you know, over the, as with every show, you know, it, it has moments in your consciousness where like you spend a lot of time thinking about it and whatnot. So it'd been maybe like a year or two since I really thought about this show. And as I was gearing up for this Sondheim series, I was excited for a lot of them, this one as well. And I reached out to you, Ms. Charlotte, and I said, would you really 
please do night music for me. Just thinking like you're an opinionated person with good taste and this is a good show. Uh, and then as I started listening to it again and reading the script and whatnot, I was just like, oh my God, this show is so fantastic. It's absolutely perfect. It it's is, indestructible. It is indestructible. Um, it's funny, when you asked me to do a little night music, I was literally like, oh, I mean, sure, I can talk about night music. You know, there are a lot, I, I don't consider night music like my number one favorite Son Sondheim show, mm. probably because it's not flawed. Um, so therefore I can't have like a very uh, ferocious argument about why it's still incredible. Mm -hmm. um, but so going, you famously really love Roadshow. You're like, that's your number one. Well, I famously really love Pacific Overtures. Interesting. I, yes, and I'm, I'm one of the few people who very much like will always go to bat for Pacific Overtures um so I, I i recognize the the rarity in that um but in say, looking at night oh yeah go, go, go. so i will say i so i everyone already knows that i've been recording this series super out of order so i've actually already recorded pacific overtures it's coming up after this episode uh i will say without giving too much away it's not one of my favorites but i after talking with my guest about it mm -hmm. i've come to appreciate it a lot more there's a lot to appreciate in it and it's not a perfect musical it's no. one of, it's 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 a great piece of art to study it's not a very pleasant musical to be in the audience and see but that moment in history of you know japan being forcibly opened and that culture being exposed uh to the rest of the world is what inspired a lot of the french impressionists mm -hmm. um which I'm deeply fascinated by. So that that the fact that there's a musical about something that sponsored sponsored uh, inspired uh, another deep fascination of mine. I was like, well, <laughs> this is too many things that I love in one. I can't gotta go see it. I can't not study every inch of this. Yes, I've never seen a production of Pacific Overtures. I've only seen that video of the Hal Prince production, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's it's what I realized is that in addition to I, I admire the show. I think that it takes a lot of bold choices. And again, as I said, after doing the episode, I've, there's a lot more that I've come to appreciate and like, but I really want to see a production that's not that one because that one is just very intellectual. And right. uh, the hyper-stylization of the kabuki in the no uh, direction influences the acting, which the actors do exactly what they're asked to do. It just puts the audience very much at arm's length. So I would like to see a production that doesn't do that. Right. Well, the problem with Pacific Overtures is that it was written with that structure in mind. Mm. So there is the question of whether or not the show works without it, because that is what is on the page. It is what's on the page. I do think it can work without it only because and we get 30, 20 more seconds of Pacific Overtures and I don't want to give too much away for the next episode. Oh but my gosh, I forgot enough, no, well, no, enough, <laughs> enough productions of Pacific Overtures have happened that are not necessarily that. Some have like right. had elements of it, but haven't okay. really embraced it as fully as the Hell Prince one and have been successful. And some critics- The have classic claimed, stage one being an example. Exactly. And then the uh, New National Theater of Tokyo did it in the early 2000s, leading, leaning more into, uh, I believe, no theater than Kabuki. Mm -hmm. And critics were like, oh, this is much better. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's interesting. It's open to interpretation. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not open to into into. You know, it's not open to interpretation. Charlotte Take Bleh, <laughs> is a little night music because no matter how you interpret it, it's fucking baller. It is fucking baller, no matter which way you look at it, in the exact opposite way the Pacific Overtures. <laughs> <laughs> There's simply no way. Um, what was your exposure to this show? 
Okay. Here's why I have a very complicated relationship with a little night music. And it is because the first time I had ever seen it was, it was the first time I had seen it was before I'd ever listened to it. And roundabout did a one night only uh, concert of it uh, starring Vanessa Redgrave as uh, Madame Armfelt, um, uh, Natasha Richardson as Desiree, Victor Garber as Frederick, uh, Laura Benanti as Anne. No, 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 no. She was going to do it. She had to drop out because she w- it was her last week or two of Gypsy, I think, and she was sick. And the producers of Gypsy were like, she's not missing a performance due to sickness to do your show. She's going to finish Gypsy. So what ended up happening was Jill Pace replaced her. Yes, and it I'm was freaking, Jill Pace. I'm freaking out because, Charlotte, I've always wanted to see or hear that concert. And literally two weeks ago, I can't believe I didn't include this in the email to you with, like, the stuff you could listen to. There is audio of the entire <gasps> concert. No. They, it cuts out right after Miller's son, unfortunately. But, That's just rude. Yeah, I, I think um, whoever was recording it, maybe they ran out of battery or something. Yeah. But it goes, it's all the way through... Miller son. Amazing. And it's the, the, the most important part of yes. this concert was that Charlotte was played by Christine Baranski. Yes, she was. Um, and the thing about this concert version of A Little Night Music is that it was so perfect mm-hmm. that it actually kind of ruined the show for me because any other time that I've seen it, it's never been as perfect mm-hmm. <laughs> as the first time I saw it. The yeah. two other times that I've seen A Little Night Music have been two uh, very uh, inappropriate productions in mm-hmm. which, by which I mean, this is a show that is about age differences. Mm-hmm. And the two other times that I've seen it were at Stage Door Manor and at the University of Michigan. <laughs> there it is. The first time I saw it was also at Stage Door Manor, but I don't think it was the production you saw. Uh, not the one from uh, Swine 09. <laughs> No, is that what it was called? No, but that was the year that everyone had swine flu. Oh, (laughs) that was that was the year after I left because I my last year was 08 where I did Bat Boy, pissed all over that campus and then peaced out. (laughs) Yeah, you and my sister were like, boom. (laughs) Yeah, me and Emily, we did Bat Boy and we're like, sorry, flops out of here. Um, And then I was like, it's okay, I'll pick up where they left off. You absolutely did. (laughs) Well, you the next generation. You absolutely were. Uh, (laughs) I saw Night Music in 2004 when I was at Stage Door and it was my Mm -hmm. first time ever seeing it live. Actually, so hmm, fun fact. I don't know if you know this, Charlotte, when I was a youngin, I used to audition for quite a few like professional things. Oh, did you know? Tell me more about this. Well, I auditioned for the children's chorus of the Broadway production of La Boheme and I didn't get in. Oh, but you know who did? Samantha Samantha Yes, I do. Uh, We did talk about that at Stage Door. Uh, I auditioned for the first workshop of Tarzan to play a young Turk. And then they said, no, we're going to go for a 40-year-old man the entire time. (laughs) Well, it's really hard to beat that. It's listen, 12 year old me, talented as he was, could not compete with a 40 year old veteran. Yeah. Uh, Try as other, you did. The other thing was, I auditioned for and got really far the original movie version of School of Rock. I am so jealous. When that movie first came out, I honestly, I tried to convince myself that I hated it because I was jealous that I wasn't in it. <laughs> yeah. I can't argue for the kid who got the role that I was up for, but you, I think you can tell what role I was up for. Were you Liza Minnelli? The little gay boy, yeah. <laughs> Liza Minnelli is my hero. 
I mean, you weren't not already that kid, though. No, I wasn't. I was. Was that was, an acting job, or would have that just been? Reality it was a reality TV? show. <laughs> uh, you're tacky, and I hate you. No, I think looking back on my audition and my callbacks for it, I was a little bigger than I think they wanted. The casting director told me to go full Jack McFarland, which I did. Sure. And then when it got towards the end of it, uh, I think what because the director was Richard Linklater of all people. Uh, the lolcats of it all <laughs> and, he's, and I'm sure he was like I want subtlety I want reality so the kid who did it was a lot drier than I was but part of the audition was when Jack Black's like okay you sing you sing you sing little gay boy's supposed to sing send in the clowns and I don't think it's in the movie I don't think it's in the final product it's not, but it's not. in the script and I remember reading the script and like what the fuck is this song I've never heard it before and so we bought the cast album to listen to send in the clowns and then uh, eventually I fell in love with the entire cast album. But my the best way I can describe my interpretation of Send in the Clowns is on SNL, they had a sketch once, which was like a joke on America's Got Talent, but wait, they're good. And it's these people who come on and you think they're going to be bad and they end up being amazing. And they keep on upping the stakes. So uh, Cecily Strong comes out full on Jodie Foster and Nell, like raised by wolves, ratted hair. And they go, okay, I get, we'll see what you have to offer. She pulls up a stool and she starts to go, isn't it rich? Are we up there? And it's just very cabaret, Michelle Pfeiffer on the piano, fabulous Baker boy style. And that was my interpretation of Sending the Clowns. 12-year-old Matt Coplick was going, isn't it rich? Oh my God. And I didn't fucking book it. But that's but my exposure. Somewhere is the footage of that audition. Somewhere. And I want it. That's I why I'm never going to be famous because I refuse to have that footage leak when they go, look at what he used to do. Oh, no. Uh, that is the, that is not giving the people what they want. <laughs> the the air is thick with all of the things that I just never got. Uh, I was up for Band Slam, that movie where Vanessa Hudgens is Sam with a five in the middle of her name. It's a five of them. It's a five of them. Uh, <laughs> I was up for, there's a scene in It's Complicated with Meryl Streep that ended up getting cut, but the whole thing is like, she goes on an online date with someone who she connects with only to find out that he's like a 15-year-old boy. And I auditioned for the 15-year-old boy. And it pissed me off because the casting director was my scene partner and she was giving me like full on Elizabeth Moss and Mad Men ha Handmaid's Tale where she's like, you're Jean? Oh my God. And I was like, can you be funny please? Because you're bombing my audition. <laughs> I was so upset. <gasps> yeah. So we both have history with night music. Mm -hmm. It's not the most intense. Like neither one of us has ever been in it. Uh, you didn't see the production that came to Broadway, did you? I did. The oh, one did. with, uh, oh, no, no, no. I saw the the Bernie one. Okay. I did not see the Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yes. Uh, we'll, get into more, we'll get into more about that production in a second. I will say, and this is sort of to tease everybody, I did not care for that production, but I did see it, technically speaking, four times. I, well, I need, I need you to say more about technically speaking. I'm yes. assuming we'll get into that. Yes, exactly. Because you, um, you can't say that and then brush past it. <laughs> well, I'm a very aware. This is this is what we call edging, Charlotte. Oh yes, thank you. Yes, in the in the queer community, that's what we call edging. Uh, so let's get into sort of a bit of the history of the show, how it came to be. I will barrel through this as quickly as I can, so you and I can just talk shop. Uh, anything that you might uh, know as I go along, just feel free to say. Otherwise, I'm just gonna gonna go as quickly as possible. Uh, right. I have so, a lot of fun facts, but I'll see if I'll, I'll save them for the conversation. Fantastic. I also <laughs> have a fun fact about this show as well. 
uh, in regards to Victoria Mallory. She was my voice teacher for a while towards the end of my, yeah, Victoria Mallory, the original Anne in A Little Night Music. I took voice lessons with her from sophomore year of college through, I guess, a year or two after I graduated. So like for about four years. And often I would make her interrupt our lessons to give me a line reading and she would do it. And then I would, I'd have the audacity to say, no, Vicky, say it like how you did. And she's like, Matt, that was 40 years ago. I don't remember. And then I would tell her how she said it and then make her say it how I said it. I am unsurprised by everything you just said. 100%. But she told me her audition story for the show, which is great. And I, we will get to it uh, later on. Maybe not that later on, but pretty soon. So at this point, Sondheim has had, uh, technically speaking, three Tony wins. He's won two for Company, one for Follies. Uh, Company wins a musical, Follies does not. Company makes money, Follies loses its entire investment. And Hal Prince is getting nervous because a lot of his core investors are starting to die. And the ones that have remained are like, we don't like that we lost all of our money on Follies. So we're getting antsy about investing in your next show. So we tell Sondheim, we need to write a hit. We need a successful musical coming up, which has him sort of talked disparagingly about night music after the fact. He's always like, that was the, that was meant to be the commercial hit. And Sondheim's like, oh no, every time I see it, I'm like, oh yeah, you're good. Uh, <laughs> which is, you know, classic Sondheim. Classic. <laughs> so they're thinking of what that show's going to be. And they, they were discussing how they wanted to do sort of um, a comedy of manners, a very like elegant affair. And the first thing they really wanted to do was the play uh, Ring Round the Moon, which I also saw at Stage Row Manor. The only reason I knew it existed was because of Stage Row Manor. Absolutely. I remember really liking it at Stage Row too. Anyway, but maybe my memories of some Stage Row shows are are better than they actually were. Well, we thought those were Broadway caliber productions. (laughs) I'm sorry. Are you telling me that my performance as Bat Boy and my performance as Seymour Krelborn were not uh, Tony worthy? I'm telling you that when I sang um, somewhere that's green in our production of Little Shop of Horrors, there were gunshots going on in the background because there was a gun show down the road. Charlotte, that has nothing to do with your performance. That has to do with the <laughs> environment in which we performed in. You literally I... were trying to be self-effacing and all you just said was a fact about your environment. <laughs> You know, when I performed flawlessly at the age of 13, it was so embarrassing because, you know, there was a wind that day. Like, well, fuck first you. of all, I was 12. Yes, you were about to turn 13. <laughs> I was about to turn 13. I was a 17-year-old. No, 17, I was a 17-year-old Seymour to a 12-year-old Audrey. That made me feel real good. Well, that's a great uh, segue into A Little Night Music, which is also about very inappropriate uh, age differences. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so... They wanted to ring around the moon. They reach out to the playwright and his agent says no. And they had reached out to him a few years earlier. He said no. And so they're like, we thought maybe with Follies and Company as our cachet, he'd be a little more like, oh yeah, sure. Why not? But still he was like, no, fuck Broadway. So they arranged uh, a screening of two movies to sort of see if either one could uh, possibly be worth it. One was a Renoir film called Rules of the Game, which I never heard of before, but I'm also an uncultured fuck. Uh, and then the other is Smiles of the Summer Night by uh, Ingmar Bergman. And they decide that Smiles of the Summer Night actually has a lot of merit to it. They're like, oh, this is interesting. It's it's funny. It's light. Uh, there's some edge to it. We think this could maybe be something. And so they reach out to Bergman and he's like, do whatever you want. My only thing is don't take the title. It can't be Smiles of the Summer Night. So Sondheim says, okay, he always wanted to use the title A Little Night Music for a Piece, which is the title of the Mozart uh, 
work and they use it. And then the only time he was able, he went to Bergman to be like, can we please just use Smiles of the Summer Night was when the first German production of Night Music was going up. And he's like, we can't use this title in German because it's already a thing in Germany. <laughs> can we please turn, call it Smiles of the Summer Night in German there? And he's like, yeah, fine, whatever. So <clears throat> they start getting to work on it. They reach out to Hugh Wheeler, who is a British playwright and mystery novelist to write the libretto. Originally Sondheim wanted the whole thing to sort of be the best way I can describe it is like sliding doors with magic where the character of Matthew Armfelt, so like, as, like noises she, off meets Harry Potter. Kind of <laughs> sort of it's where, but it's, it, or like I, if then meets magic where it's like, mm-hmm. uh, Madame Armfeld, because the play opens and she's playing solitaire and she keeps playing solitaire. That was going to be like a narrative device where every time she sort of reshuffles the deck, everything sort of rewinds and then they play the story out again in a different way until by the end of the night, uh, everyone's matched up with who they're supposed to be matched up with. So like the first time, no one is with the right partner. The second time, some people are together, but also like Henrik shoots himself. And then the third time, everyone's together. And Hugh Wheeler basically goes out to the country for a week and he- Or a weekend. Or a weekend in the country, yes. And he phones them up and he's like, listen guys, I don't like your idea. Um, I'm trying to make it work and I can't, can I just like do what I do? Like I'm gonna do sort of a more literal translation of the screenplay. I'm like, yeah, sure, do what you want. And so he writes it and sends it to Sondheim and Prince. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. You know, basically in a weekend, Hugh Wheeler writes one of the best librettos of all time. And sometimes like, yeah, this'll do. Um, it was much more, and you said, yeah, he said, well, he said at the time he was like kind of underwhelmed because it was too straightforward. It was too much of like a uh, ABC plot line. It wasn't really. But that's what gave him the freedom to make all of the, the crazy themes and variations musically. Yes. Well, so it's one of those things where sometimes the constraint of the structure actually can then help your creativity because Mm -hmm. when you're like, well, it's free reign, we're going to do all these random things. It's like, well, no, it's going to be a very realistic world and here's how the story is going to play out and figure it out through here. And that actually helped Sondheim a lot of ways. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar, if not necessarily no intimately crazy ex-girlfriend tv show crazy ex-girlfriend what makes you assume that i know that show so well this <laughs> i didn't yes, say you I know it well i said you're familiar i am familiar yes yes because i know you so i know that you're aware of it if not necessarily intimately involved anyway yes rachel bloom talks about how the show was supposed to go to showtime and then when showtime dropped it and they went on the cw at first they were all like oh my god network tv we have to put in commercial breaks we have to clean up our language how are we going to do this and then she goes, that was actually the best thing that ever happened to us because with those limits, it made us more creative of like getting the same joke across in a way that we could get past the censors. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with the rest of development, how because they couldn't curse, they ended up turning the the bleeping into punchlines. Absolutely. And it just, yeah. And so that was, it ends up helping Sondheim with his score. And originally he talks about how his first uh, dab at it. I don't What's the word I'm looking for? Not dab. Like Stab? It, yes. <laughs> Words are hard, Matt. It's okay. By the time this comes out, I will technically be 30 for a second time. And um, my brain's not great. It's not loving this. 
You know what? No one's brain is in its prime right now. <laughs> I know. But I was hoping that during this time where everyone's weakened, I could sort of rise above and be champion of the zombies. And that's not really happening. I'm... Yeah, that's not really how it works, Matt. I appreciate your thinking, though. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was going to stop being the protagonist of my movie and be the protagonist of everyone's movie. But yet again, I'm still just that extra that gets swept up in the ocean in a disaster film. <laughs> I'm not Brad Pitt in World War At C. At least you know your role. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. It's nice. It's humbling. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, you can't be as beautiful and smart as I am and not be a little humble about it. You know what I mean? It's only fair. Exactly. So he says his first stab at it was much darker and more Chekhovian and Prince heard it and he was like, Steve, we're trying to make a comedy here. Can you maybe not make it so goddamn depressing? And uh, the term that Sondheim talks about with Hal Prince is Hal Prince said, let's think of this show as whipped cream with knives in it. And he said, Hal Hal was more interested in the whipped cream and I was more interested in the knives, uh, which allowed the original production to have an edge to it, but still be really enjoyable. Um, But at the time, he was very like, I want to do something that's different. I I just did Follies. Now I have to do this show. And Hal Prince is like, yeah, we just did Follies. So we need to do this show. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, The music was very much inspired by Ravel and Brahms composed in three-quarter time and multiples thereof and we can talk about them more Mm -hmm. the show is very much inner monologues there's really only maybe two scenes where the songs are like you know dialogue set to music most everything Mm -hmm. else is Mm -hmm. separate he talks about how a lot of the songs are about people sort of in isolation everyone's sort of an island in a little light music floating by each other but not necessarily with each other Mm -hmm. um which is pretty fair sondheim was also really hesitant about writing it because you know it takes place in Sweden and they were putting in uh the Swedish Greek chorus and Sondheim was telling Bert Shevlov who he worked with on the frogs and forum he's like I don't know what do I know about Sweden at the turn of the century and Bert Shevlov's like what did Shakespeare know about ancient Rome just like write what you know and apply it to the setting you idiot (laughs) yeah who cares about actual historical research right right well that's sort of i mean he's like you know learn as much as you can and then like apply what who you are to it but it's interesting like even back in the day sondheim was sort of the first person to be like guys what do any of us really know about (laughs) any of these things we're all white jews from brooklyn and manhattan like maybe we don't attack certain plot lines that we know nothing about just Hmm. saying there is an argument to be made for that. Although I will say I genuinely uh, did not know. I'm sure I knew, but did not clock that uh, Little Night Music uh, took place in Sweden until prepping for uh, this year podcast. <laughs> so that just goes to show how much of uh, the relevance of the historical location of the show. Uh, exactly. Really- There's only really... There's a, it's it's the, fact the names the names and then and then sort of act two makes reference to uh how in Sweden the shortest day of the year or shortest night of the year I should say is in the summer and it's when basically it's called the midsummer and it's just when uh you know the sun just doesn't set and there are lyrics with the sun won't set it's dark as it's going like a 90s pop song well that's how I sing things it's a Gwen Stefani tune she's on (laughs) she's on a beach with pink hair talking about how the sun won't set uh basically like the writing of this show 
has no real like major issues other once they kind of get past the whole Hugh Wheeler going, we're not going conceptual guys. We're just going to write a musical. Right. Uh, the biggest problems they had were just uh, backers. I uh, was um, getting backers. Prince says in an interview, he was like, we got very close to having to do backers auditions, which I haven't had to do for the pajama game. It was very embarrassing. And he's like, but then we were able to raise all the money. I'm like, what a wonderful story, Hal. You almost had to do a thing that everyone else has to do, but then you didn't have to in the end. And like, you know, I love Hal Prince. You know, we, I respect him and everything that he's done. But every now and then I'm reading these things and I'm like, dude, come on. Like, this isn't the story you think it is. <laughs> It was he is so, our king. He's our prince. He's our prince. He's our prince. But you know, it's one of those things where he's he goes, you know, we all it was a really dark time. We almost had to audition for backers. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm so sorry for your loss. For your almost <laughs> loss. I'm so sorry for your almost loss. Yeah, I'm so sorry that you almost had to do a thing that everyone else has had to do for so exactly. long. Exactly, exactly. They start casting the show, and this is where I'll tell my Victoria Mallory story. Uh for Desiree Armfeld, they were first looking at Tammy Grimes, who was a Tony Fine. winner for Unsinkable Molly Brown. And she almost went into the show later because when they cast Glynis Johns and then they get to do previews on Broadway, Glynis Johns gets a viral infection and they're like, we don't know if she's going to make it. She like went into the hospital over the course of three hours. And so they brought Tammy Grimes in and then Tammy Grimes was like, I've got thoughts on the character and Hell Prince is like, we open in a week. You're not allowed to have thoughts. Just do the show. <laughs> <laughs> and then Glennis Johns gets better. I'm like, oh, fantastic. Never mind. You can leave now, Tammy Grimes. Oh, God. So my Vicky story, Victoria Mallory, how she got into the show. Victoria Mallory was in Follies at the time when they were casting for a little night music. And she got cast in Follies because, you know, she had done West Side Story at, at uh, Lincoln Center. She was Maria. And so she was sort of like an ingenue on the rise. And she auditions for Follies. You're going to say ingenue on the rocks. <laughs> she was an ingenue on the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Very difficult time for Vicky. And Hal Prince says to her, he's like, Vicky, you know, that was great. You're beautiful. You got a beautiful voice. We just don't have a part for you in this show. And she was like, Mr. Prince, I want to be in the show so badly that if you think you can spare the expense, just cast me and I will do literally anything. She's like, I will carry a dessert tray across the stage if you want me to. And I was like, oh, okay. So they well, get in the days when you could negotiate your way into a Broadway contract. I know, right? Things... <laughs> things have changed guys yeah things aren't the same but so basically with follies her she's sort of sitting in rehearsal every day and hal's like uh we need a waitress here vicky you're the waitress in the scene and the next he's like we need a photographer which vicky you're gonna be the photographer and then sometimes like oh that song i wrote one more kiss maybe we make it a duet with the old woman and her ghost vicky you're the ghost i wrote the counterpart for you <laughs> and she's like oh great so about almost a year into the run of follies she like shows up to the theater one day and the stage manager is like oh uh vicky how wants to see you in his office tomorrow She's like, oh God, am I getting fired? What have I been doing wrong? And she goes into Hal Prince's office the next day and he's sitting at his desk and on his desk is the script for night music. And he's like, oh, Vicky, he doesn't say anything. He's like, Vicky, sit down. Um, Opens to page like four. He goes, uh, can you read that line for me, please? And she's like, uh, okay. Oh, Frederick. And he goes, great, that's enough. Thank you. She goes, what? did I do something wrong? Like, what? what's this about? And he's like, oh, you did nothing wrong. You have the part. And she goes, part, what part? It's like, you just auditioned for this role. You got the part. She's like, I did. Oh my God. All she said was, oh, Frederick. And he oh, goes, Frederick. yeah. Oh, Frederick. And he goes, oh yeah, no, that you got the part. 
But at the same time, like if you even just listen to her on the cast recording, hear her go, oh, Frederick. And you're just like, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, she gets it. Oh, Frederick, what a day it's been. Unending drama. That was one of the things I made her say all the time. That and, um, but French is much chicer language. Everyone says so. Parlez-vous français. I just had her say that all the time. Just delicious. Oh, she's She was a gem. It's Her passing was very sad. But uh, we love you, Vicky. You are forever immortal due to a little night music. Anyway. They go into rehearsals with like half of the score written, which, (laughs) you know, again, back in the day. And Hal Prince said after that rehearsal process, he told Sondheim they're never going into rehearsal again without at least 95% of the score done. Oh my God. That's very Aaron Sorkin. They didn't have A Weekend in the Country written yet. They didn't have In Praise of Women written yet. Send in and the they Clowns. did not have Send in the Clowns. They did not have Send in the Clowns. Uh, there was another one they didn't. Oh, Miller's Son wasn't written yet. Mm-hmm. So basically the two big stories in the rehearsal process. And again, I'm trying to barrel through it, but I get sidetracked. Um, the story we, of Send in the Cr- Clowns is like deeply fascinating. Yes. Uh, so first weekend in the country, cause it's just fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically Hal Prince is like, we need an act one finale. And sometimes like, I don't know what to write. And so basically Hal Prince talked with Hugh Wheeler about like what needs to be accomplished by the end of act one. Like who needs to be where plot wise with each character. And Hugh Wheeler's like, okay, we need like these five people to speak to each other at one given point to establish like who's going to the country. And Hal Prince is like, great. And he goes, Steve, come in. So he basically says, Steve, I've staged the act one finale already, even though there's no song, because we know how we, we know what we need to accomplish. It's like, so here are the actors sort of improvising scenes for you. And Steve and Sondheim watches them all improvised scenes. Oh, and he's like, great. And he goes home and he basically writes a weekend in the country over like two or three days. That makes me want to scream into a pillow. Like <laughs> the fact that he's like, hmm, 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 got it. Musical yeah. masterpiece, here you go. Yeah. Well, he does say like he it's really hard for him to just sort of invent stuff. He needs things to go off of. And he said, like, he wrote the opening of company when he saw the set and he saw right. all the levels. And he's like, Oh, I can envision this. So weekend of the country, he's like, Oh, great. You're telling me exactly who has to talk to who at exactly at what point. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, Very interesting hearing how similar uh, Sondheim's uh, writing process is to Aaron Sorkin's. Because Aaron Sorkin will be like, he'll like, talk to his uh, his you know team who is much more uh, politically savvy than he has uh, admitted himself to be. Mm-hmm. And he'll be like, hmm, tell me something interesting. And someone will be like, hmm, well, I find the census interesting. He'll be like, great. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'll sit down and write an entire episode about how the census is interesting. Yeah, give me give me five bullet points of facts on this so that I can incorporate into a story. Great, here's a perfectly well-crafted and well-articulated episode. Yes. Uh, do you want to tell the Send in the Clown story or should I? Sure, so like at that point, at that uh, point in the show, the song was supposed to be sung by Frederick. Yes, um, towards the end of act two. At towards the, yeah. Yes, we'll go into plot, plot stuff later. Yeah, and except then Hal stages the scene, goes up to Steve and goes, hey, um, Desiree's driving the scene. It should be Desiree's song. But the thing is, Glennis Johns, not much of a singer, has this gorgeous, uh, breathy, interesting sound, but like can't actually sustain a note. So he had to come up with a song that did not have any sustained notes, which is why the song is all questions instead of statements. <laughs> yes, with a lot of closed off words. So exactly. yes, he says it's a song that the more you sing it, the worse it comes off. He's like, don't try to sing it so much. Though part of Desiree Armfelt was 
written to not be a singing role at first because exactly. for 1973 they he was like we were looking for a woman who was of a certain age she had to be you know older than 40 she had to read mature but still have a lot of sex appeal have a vulnerability have an elegance about her and be really funny he goes and we thought at the time that we were kind of asking too much to have her also be this amazing singer because to be fair in the 1970s a lot of people um and especially women, because that's how theater works, unfortunately. Uh, less so now, but still, yeah. still a bit. I'm like, this doesn't sound like a tall order. I feel like everyone's expected to be all of the things now. Well, yes, but in terms of, it was why they had such a problem casting Follies, because so many people, once they got to past a certain age and found fewer roles for themselves, they were like, well, I'm just going to leave the theater and right. sort of do other stuff. So when they were auditioning actors for Follies who had to be like over 45, a lot of people were like, oh, I was in, I was on Broadway in the 1930s, but I can't sing anymore because I haven't sung in 15 years. Right. So they were like, we're looking for a very specific thing. And it's entirely possible that who we find could be like this amazing actress who just doesn't sing. Mm-hmm. And with Glynis Johns, they found that she actually had a really lovely voice it just as you said it couldn't really yeah. sustain a note it was very She's i don't want to use delicious speaking voice yes it's like very raspy but silvery at the same time very yes. smoky very smoky it's very emily gilmore yes uh, <laughs> very kelly bishop but very like kelly bishop and very what's her name who plays uh the mom in mary poppins she is the mom in mary poppins <laughs> you stupid bitch Linus Johnson is the mom in Mary Poppins, you uncultured fuck. Don't you dare. Oh, of course that's staying in. As you can all tell, I really did my research preparing for this episode. (laughs) I came to this very thoughtful uh, conclusion and then did no uh, research to back up that thought whatsoever. So for anybody who always talks about how unrealistic it is that the prince in Cinderella wouldn't recognize Cinderella and has to recognize her by her foot. Just remember Charlotte Maltby (laughs) and Glynis Johns. Oh, well done, sister suffragette. Anywho, yes, so that's how he he watches the scene because in in that scene, Frederick has this very long monologue and originally that monologue was going to be a song. And Prince is like, no, it's, it's her scene right for her and sometimes like I don't know what you mean so he watches the scene and basically is like oh I know exactly what you mean then goes home and writes send in the clowns for Glennis Johns and she says even to him because they were like about to leave for Boston like later that week and they were going to do what was then called their gypsy run in an abandoned theater for a lot of people in the industry before they left for out of town which is something that people used to do not really done anymore and she she's like if you can type up the lyrics on a sheet for me I will sing this in front of everybody uh, at the run tomorrow. And she did. Yeah, so they go to Boston. Uh, The reviews are kind of lukewarm. Everyone's like, it's admirable, but I don't really feel anything. Uh, They make a couple of changes. They shave off like 15 minutes of the show. The biggest change is that they replace the actress playing Petra because they wrote the Miller son in rehearsals. And the original actress was more of an actress than a singer. And then she's been given the Miller son. And an actress who can't really sing. Hmm? I said, that poor woman, that's just not fair. It's not fair. But, you know, things that that's how the cookie crumbles sometimes. I know. It's just so unfair because what a song. What a song. Like, Petra gets her song and it's- Also, what a track. That is the princessiest of princess tracks. It truly is. She gets to chill and have like snarky Mm one-liners and then gets to drop down at the end of the show and then peace out. She gets the last- so, I mean, there's like a reprise of clowns at the end, but like she gets the real last song. 
Oh my god! Yeah, she, hers is kind of the eleven o'clock number. Yeah, uh, it's Send of the clowns is the ten forty-five. Exactly. <laughs> it's the it's the uh, pickup before the eleven o'clock. Yes, exactly. So as I said, they come to they come to Broadway for previews. Uh, Glennis Johns gets a virus where she had to leave the show for a couple of days, and they were like, "Fuck, we might have to push back a week." Bring in Tammy Grimes. Tammy Grimes then says, you know, I've got thoughts. And Prince is like, fuck your thoughts. We open in seven days. Right. <laughs> Which I think normally I think he would have been a little more open to it. But he's like, he's like, the sets are built. There are audiences in the theater. What the fuck are you talking about? Notes. No, no, no. No, 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 no. no, no, no they no. want to make some changes. He's like, excuse you? No. <laughs> Be like, I'm sure you would. I'm sure no. you would have thoughts. Take them and shove them right back up your bum. Yes. There's another story back. in regards to that kind of same thing with Sweeney and Sondheim that I'll get to on the Sweeney episode. But it's, it's, it's another thing where like another person gives Sondheim notes like a little too soon. And <laughs> Sondheim's like, literally go fuck yourself. Well, it's like Dustin Hoffman, whenever he was given a note, he'd go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and he would write it down. But what he'd really write down on a piece of paper was, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> oh, Dustin Hoffman, just the least toxic of actors, you know? Yes. Well, I can think of more toxic people, but. That's, you know what? That is absolutely fair. He is not the <laughs> most toxic, but he's also not the least toxic. He's not, not within that category. He is probably the ceiling of middle management of toxicity, I would say. Sure. Like, He's towing the line of getting into the upper echelon, but he yeah. doesn't totally go there. He's no Casey Affleck. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Here's a person who I didn't expect to bring up in talking about a little night music. Is Casey, Casey Affleck. Affleck. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly we took away different things from Manchester by the Sea. Yeah. Well, last time we were talking about Oklahoma and I, we talked about Paddington 2 for like 20 minutes. So clearly we're all- I will talk about Paddington 2 all day I will long. talk about Paddington 2 any day of the week. You know what we did? We, talk, we talked about Oklahoma and then talked about fucking Taylor Swift. That's what we did. I will also talk about Taylor Swift any day of the week. It's fine. I go on tangents upon tangents upon tangents. And it's also become a running gag on this series that like I will just bring up random pop culture things and connect it to the musical we're talking about. Because it's all part of the same world. Yes. And like Manchester by the Sea, a little night music has blondes crying sometimes. I hate you. I didn't see Manchester by the Sea, but I did watch Michelle Williams <laughs> Oscar clip. And that's my only takeaway. Oh, God. I don't know. I, I I'm sure it's good. It just looks so Oscar-y. It's very Oscar-y, and that's why it won the yeah, Oscar. It's why it won that Oscar. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the same reason why I'm like, must I see Mank? I, it just looks so Oscar-y. Yeah. Anywho, they do open, and this is the first time. Actually, no, no, we're not talking about reviews yet. We're talking about reviews after we talk about the show. Let's <laughs> fucking talk about the show. Yay! Opens February twenty fifth, nineteen seventy three, at the Schubert Theater. I know, fucking finally. Charlotte, what is A Little Night Music about? Oh, God. Okay, so The Little Night Music is <laughs> about three couples cheating on each other, basically. Um, <laughs> it's about a bunch of people who are attracted to people of the wrong age group. And uh, so Frederick, who is in his late 40s, has just married mm-hmm. Anne, who is 18. And Frederick has a son who's 20. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, my favorite thing is in the Sondheim book, it says that, you know, due to Anne's shyness, Frederick has not been able to consummate the marriage. And I'm like, I'm sorry, due to her shyness or due to the fact that you're 40 and she's 18. Um, (laughs) yeah, it's, we'll get into that. It's, it's, it's a weird, it's not great. No, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Yes. So that's Frederick, Anne and Henrik. 
that that's that little trio doodly doo and then um frederick used to have a fling with desiree who is this big famous actress who tours around the world who has a daughter named frederica mm-hmm. um hmm, wonder where she got that name from um and she, frederick cheats on Anne with desiree who is currently in a relationship with carl magnus who's married to charlotte my name same and also the light of my life mm-hmm. um and charlotte uh charlotte's sister went to school with Anne, so it's all very you know everyone's connected in some we're way. all very connected and we're all sleeping together yes um <laughs> and so basically frederick cheats on Anne with desiree and then desiree invites Anne and frederick to a weekend in the country and then carl magnus gets jealous and decides hey charlotte we're gonna crash um and then act two happens hilarity ensues and Fr- and uh hendrick doesn't kill himself yes they Desiree's, Desiree's mother, Madame Armfelt, is a... Oh my god, I didn't re- even mention yeah, Madame She's Armfeld. a renowned... She's my favorite character. She's a renowned courtesan who used her wiles to obtain many things. So she now has this giant mansion and all these servants and all these things. And she has Desiree's daughter, Frederica, live with her because while Madame Armfelt does not... The line is, I do not object, Desiree, to your the immorality of your life, merely to its sloppiness. And basically says like Frederica's living with me so she can learn how to live life properly and like learn exactly all how you can uh, be a woman in this world and still get things mm-hmm. uh and so Desiree invites everybody to her mother's house and as you said hilarity ensues and everybody ends up with their correct partners in the end Desiree with Frederick uh Anne with Henrik who all this time has been in love with Anne and yes. and is very uh godly he goes my to sem- god is he gloomy yeah he goes to don't you have anything less gloomy to practice he loves his cello and he loves jesus and but he also and he is having this, and he's having this internal struggle because he loves he's in love with his stepmother Anne, who's two years his junior but he also has all this lust in his heart so he tries to take out his lust on the sultry maid of the house petra that never really works out uh because and then petra can get it petra and she does because she can't get it and boy does she because she wants to and then carl magnus ends up with charlotte in the end and they go off this book is just so so fucking delicious so it is the very tits Um, that is a d cup tit it is a d cup it is luscious pendulous one might say it is (laughs) oh god (laughs) pendulous and swinging Woo! um in threes no less what is your favorite song in this show charlotte Okay, um, that's a very interesting. I mean, I have to say, a weekend in the country, just because it's it's just delicious. Yes, it's everything that I want in a song. It is story. It is witty. It has so much shit going on, and mm-hmm. yet it's perfectly organized. Um, and it's it's just amazing. A weekend in the country. Just imagine it's completely depraved. A weekend in the country. It's insulting, it's engraved. Is that woman, is that arm belt on the actress? Oh, the goo. She may hope to make a charm belt, but she's mad if she thinks I would be such a fool as to weekend in the country. How insulting, and I'm nothing to wear. A weekend in the country. Here, the last place I'm going is there. Something that has always been a thing with me in Sondheim, as I'm sort of going through his work, is that very often he's not really able to write 
jokes, like funny lyrics. They can be really mm-hmm. witty and really clever, but they're not always funny. This show, he writes fucking funny lyrics. Oh my God. He's got some punchlines. And like a lot of my favorite lines in the show, like make me outwardly guffaw. Uh, I mean, in praise of women is really funny. Uh, Fidelity, like mine to Desiree and Charlotte, uh-huh. my devoted wife. Yes. Uh, the best like the best I can do is trust in her the way that Charlotte trusts in me. And then <laughs> Weekend in the Country, all of Charlotte's stuff where she tells Anne. So when Desiree invites Anne to Weekend in the Country with her family, uh-huh, and Anne's uh-huh. like, of course I'm not going to do it because, you know, she's mad. She thinks I would be such a fool. And I just love her. She's, Anne is so flippant and her values are in all the wrong things. So when Petra is like telling her, maybe we should go. And she's like, oh, like, well, no, I guess it's insulting if you say so. And Anne goes, yes. And on top of that, I have nothing to wear. Yes. <laughs> and and she, oh. tell, oh, she also has... Um, because at that point she knows that Frederick and Desiree have slept together because Charlotte has told her. Charlotte's started to become her confidant. Mm-hmm. And Charlotte convinced uh, Charlotte convinces Anne to go. Uh, and she tells her, she basically tells her, use your youthfulness as a weapon. A weekend in the country. But it's frightful. No, you don't understand. A weekend in the country is delightful. If it's planned, wear your hair down and a flower. Don't use makeup, dress in white. She'll grow older by the hour. And be hopelessly shattered by Saturday night. Spend a weekend in the country. We'll accept it. I had a feeling you would. A weekend in the country. Yes, it's only polite that we should. Good. You know what I love about this show is that it actually treats everybody with a great deal of respect. Like everyone, everyone is at one point the butt of the joke, but then everybody also gets their moment to kind of express who they are and what they're about in a way that's not judgmental by the writers. Mm Mm-hmm everyone has depth to them and the closest to is really a cartoon is Carl Magnus but even he like you yeah. see the softer side of him um his like jealousy comes from both a place of dominance but also of caring like Charlotte is the woman he loves and when he sees that she might be flirting with someone else he becomes a tiger for her and it's it's yeah, yeah. I mean he doesn't not deserve a swift punch in the th- in the throat sure. uh, but <laughs> he no he does deserve it but like yeah. after, once you once it sort of punch him in the throat and then like hold his hand and tell him like why he deserved that you know yes and then like stroke his hair <laughs> yes um it's yeah it's a great song i love weekend in the country and yeah. fun fact my grandparents on my mom's side uh were in the theater and went to a lot of opening nights back in the day. And they went to opening night of A Little Night Music in 1973. And- A little an opening night music? A little bit. And what happened was intermission rolls around. A Weekend in the Country happens. One of the greatest act one finales of all time. And my grandfather turns to my grandmother and he says, we're leaving. (gasps) What? Yep. He made my grandmother walk out on opening night of A Little Night Music. Oh, that's shameful. (laughs) Yeah, well, he's dead now, so he got his. Oh, God. Oh, I love him. But that was something we always sort of argued about in his life was the quality of Sondheim. (laughs) He was like, night music was boring. I was like, fuck you. It was complex. 
It was complex, and it's fuck. It takes its time for sure. The first ten minutes. It's also very long. Yes, it's long. It take and the first ten minutes you do feel the length of it. It takes its time, but if done well, it can still be really engaging. And honestly, by the time glamorous life happens, like you're kind of in it, and you just yeah. keep being in it. Yeah, and I it mean, pays it's off. A, it has a it has a slow start because uh, it starts with you know the lederhosen. Uh, <laughs> Yes, the singers, the Swedish Greek chorus that come in and out of the show to sing. <laughs> and then it has the that those three songs. It's, it's not really a great opening number. It doesn't really draw you in, but three incredible songs all linked together, which is uh, now, later, and soon. Yes, where we establish that Frederick has been married to Anne for almost a year now, 11 months, and they still mm-hmm. haven't consummated the marriage. And Henrik is back from seminary school and he's frustrated because everyone keeps telling him later, you know, we'll talk about your schooling later. We'll talk about your feelings later. And so he sings while basically making love to his cello, cello, when is later. (laughs) And then we have Anne who sings to a sleeping Frederick, like soon we will sleep together. We'll foop soon. We'll foop soon. What I like about it is it talks, the show has a lot of interest in sort of sexuality and the pride of it and the sort of, um, conservative ideals that society has placed on sexuality that gets in the way of our own enjoyment and and you know pleasure and we have Anne who's like following the rules of society and it's kind of messing with her mentally because mm-hmm. she's afraid of sex because she thinks it's a wifely duty and she's not aware that like it's fucking fun and you should be doing it with someone you're attracted to because right. while she cares for frederick it takes her literally the entire show to realize she cares for frederick and she loves him in her own way but she's not in love with him and she doesn't actually she's not actually attracted to him and right. once she realizes that she's in love and attracted to henrik she drops her panties right there right then with him that she does yes um and you can see all of the like how these characters aren't right for each other but still have a fondness for each other which adds to the entanglement of it all because while frederick he like now is an interesting song because it is sort of the most polite way for <laughs> to go through a guy's brain of when he's trying to get with a woman yeah or anyone for that matter putting it Yes, because he's he's he is sexually frustrated he wants to have sex with his wife not just because he is attracted to her, but also because he's a man and he's still pretty viral, viral. He's pretty viral. He's pretty viral. Um, Yeah, he goes, yeah. Now does also contain my favorite lyric in the show. Is that Hans Christian Andersen? (laughs) No, but that's a great runner up. Uh, No, now as the sweet imbecilities tumble so lavishly onto her lap, now there are two possibilities. A, I could ravish her, B, I could nap. Which it has to be the most relatable lyric in the show. Yeah, we could, I could (laughs) either spend- That is a COVID relationship. (laughs) Well, it's like, I could either spend all my energy trying to get you interested in sex right now, or I could sleep. And and, and he's at an age where it's like that kind of- That is the battle. Yeah, it is a battle. He also, he has another- I would would not isolate that problem to people in their late 40s, because as someone in their uh, mid to late 20s, I I too have felt that pain. Mm -hmm. It's also, it's- uh, broken up with interjections from Anne talking about all the things in her day and all the silly things she considers important and it shows the disparity between like where he's mentally at where she's mentally at because exactly. she, she's like oh we're married isn't that so fun we're playing house 
And she's like, that includes me telling you about my day while you take your nap. And his brain, he's like, we're married, which means we should be fucking. Now, insofar as approaching it, what would be festive but have its effect? Shall I learn Italian? I think it'd be amusing if the verbs aren't too irregular. Now, there are two ways of approaching it. A, the suggestive, and B, the direct. But then French is a much cheaper language. Everyone says so. Parlez-vous français. Say that I settle on B to wit a charmingly lecherous mood. I know you like my hair this way, but on top of my head, like a siren. A, I could put on my nightshirt or sit disarmingly B in the nude. Oh, Frederick, you should have seen the great arrival. My body's all right, but not in perspective and not in the light. But she's 18. But 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 that's not even it. Like it's yes, she is young, but yeah. the, what you learn is that the moment that she connects what sex can really be, then yes, she's exactly. ready for it, it. It's more a matter of attraction than it is a, a matter of uh, age appropriateness. Yeah, Although and the age yes. does certainly play a role. Being ready for it and who you're ready for it with, and you see that it's something that she's interested in, but it also frightens her because she talks with Petra about it, mm-hmm. and she asks like, "Is it?" disgusting is it terrifying and Petra's like it's so much fun and but she still won't do it uh there are so many great lines that Anne has in there uh why are virtuous people so stingy (laughs) oh Hugh the way I describe Anne if you want to play Anne or rather I should say if you're directing a production of Night Music have the actress playing Anne watch Clueless specifically for Alicia Silverstone's performance because Anne (laughs) is Cher circa this time Right. Not Emma from Emma, but Cher from Clueless. No, no, not Emma from Emma. Cher <laughs> yeah. from Clueless. Because yeah, Emma very specifically. Yes, well Emma, she's a lot colder. Cher in Clueless sure. is not cold. She's just she has this she doesn't know what she doesn't know. And right. she believes so firmly in what she thinks she knows. And that's where the humor comes from. Exactly. So when Anne says to Frederick, like when I was a little girl and used to read fairy tales to me and I thought you were Uncle Frederick then and now you're my husband, isn't that humorous? And Frederick's face is like I'm old. He's not <laughs> saying it to be rude. She genuinely is like, isn't that funny how when I was a child, you read fairy tales to me and now you're my husband? Yeah, again, creepy. So creepy. Uh, but that's sort of, the like the show makes it very clear that it's not a good match, that he- Yeah, it makes no attempt in, in convincing us uh, that this is what's meant to be. Yes, and we- kind of weirdly like Frederick because he is aware of it. He's totally aware of it. And he's not leaning into the creep factor. The creep factor is just sort of there. He's not creepy. The circumstance is creepy. Yes. Um, He, I genuinely think he loves Anne. I genuinely think he is attracted to her Mm -hmm. or at least thinks he is. It's hard not to be attracted to Anne. Look at the material. Uh, Yes. Well, Mm. (laughs) when you're, listen, when you're Victoria Mallory in circa 1973, like, I'm sorry, that's a, that's a fox that's a damn fox yes that is a pixie queen i think his marrying Anne isn't solely due to lust he they talk about like he is trying to recapture his youth he's trying to find enjoyment in life again he's been widowed for uh, years honestly probably the majority of henrik's life Mm -hmm. and is trying to find some excitement in life again and mistakenly believes that being married to a much younger person will do that Will make and, him feel as alive, not realizing that it's love that makes you feel alive, not youth. Yes, it's and people who can enjoy life the way you can uh, at your level, as mm-hmm. opposed to like trying constantly like get someone to like rise up to your level or like calm down with you. It just doesn't. It it's doesn't a show work about to be a life coach. People who don't understand love. <laughs> yes, there's a reason why we hire life coaches. We don't marry them. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um. 
How trendy the life coaches. Yeah. And you also can tell that Anne, while she again really admires and cares for Frederick, does not really love him in that way because soon she has that lyric where she goes, even now when we're close and we touch and you're kissing my brow. I don't don't mind it so much. Yeah. It's like, she's definitely like, yeah, when you kiss my forehead, I'm like, "Uh, I guess. I'm not like fully cringing. That's a good sign. Yeah. I'm not dry heaving anymore. I also think this is probably the, I think this is the greatest musical for female roles because there are a so many and they're all, and they're so also great. And they're also different from each other. No, they're all very different from each other. And they're all very rich and emotionally complex, which Mm -hmm. shocking is very hard to find for female roles, especially that are written in this era. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially if we're talking about a character like, and there are very few soprano roles that have a lot of depth like her. Yeah. Um, Although it's very easy to play her without the depth. Uh, that I think is written on the page, but you touched uh, on that a little bit earlier. I, I didn't. I'm happy to talk about it more because Anne is the role that I think always gets the shaft when it's being cast, when it's being directed. And the material, if Night Music were a lesser musical, because the whole like crux of the show is that we're supposed to understand that Desiree and Frederick are meant to be together. Right. And that's sort of the whole plot line of Act Two is Desiree trying to get Frederick to get with her. Mm-hmm. And if Night Music were a lesser musical, it would have written Anne in such an awful way that we would so easily root for Desiree. But they, but Hugh Wheeler does a really wonderful job of making us understand what made Frederick marry Anne and also realize just how wrong they are for each other. Exactly. That's a really good point. Um, I'm smart sometimes. I sometimes. can't think of the word. I sometimes mistake stab for dab, but otherwise I'm very smart. It's okay. Sometimes I don't realize that Glynis Johns is who she is. Uh, <laughs> She's also in Superstar. She plays the grandma in Superstar with- Get Alan the Cameron. fuck out. Wow. Because when I, really I say Ooga Booga, you better Ooga Booga. What's Ooga Booga? <laughs> I don't know. But when I say it, you better well do it. Oh my God. What a career this woman has had. She's a uh, star. What a fucking a icon. Star. She's a superstar, one could say. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so going back to Anne for a second. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the way that the show kind of treats her, I think is very respectful because they could just make her the butt of the joke all the time. Right. And um, the joke is less about at her expense and more just sort of how oblivious she can be sometimes. Totally. And that's something that's actually very endearing about her as opposed to laughable. Mm-hmm. And you and it's very interesting seeing her relationship with, oh God, Henrik. I can never get Henrik. I always get Henrik and Frieder confused. Mm. Um, but seeing her relationship with Henrik and seeing their compatibility in a way that she doesn't have with her husband um, also helps uh, <laughs> you understand her a little bit further mm-hmm. and helps uh, create more depth in the show um, so that it's not just about, oh, uh, Frederick's supposed to be with Desiree. It's also Anne's not supposed to be with Frederick. Anne's supposed to be with Henrik. Yes. And the show does a really good job of sort of exploring that because you see with Henrik the inner turmoil of wanting to be good and saintly, but also he has these urges and he has these feelings and he takes them out on 
Petra, who basically just like, yeah, no, I'll, I'll take your virginity if, if that's what you want. You're a cute guy. It's it, one of my favorite lines of dialogue when Anne and Frederick go to the theater and see Desiree's play. And we cut back to the house and Hendrick stands up with Petra, Petra on the couch and he goes, we have sinned and it was a complete failure. <laughs> oh, what a good line. No, Hendrick is a character. He is just a prime example of, <laughs> you know, toxic masculinity and how awful it can be to mm-hmm. men. Um, because Henrik is a very sensitive boy who is trying to act like a man and trying to control his feelings and like shove all of them down. And he is explosive and angry because of it. Yes. And it's tragic. It's tragic when you take it outside of the, like, the comedy of the show. Mm-hmm. But then you have someone like Anne who is playful and who does sort of get him out of that mode. And that's why they end up being a good uh, match. But it's just, it's, it's, <laughs> I feel for Henrik so much and also have no tolerance for Henrik. Yeah. Well, so, and I think because he wants the world to be good and he wants to make it good, but he doesn't know how to make the world good, uh, both because the world is so complicated and also because he's like, I have all these impure thoughts. How, who am I to, you know, right. go about it? And it's once he sort of embraces the fact that his thoughts aren't necessarily imp- uh, impure, they're just, you know, they're human. It allows mm-hmm. him to be happy and to start doing good by making someone else happy. And you see that his connection with Anne is that it's kind of, his his love for Anne is also kind of complicated because he both thinks that she's innocent and pure, which is like projecting onto a person, making a person a thing, which is not great. Right, and because Anne is also she is more than the things that she doesn't know. Yes, she for, Anne is also kind of at that middle stage where she likes to be young and girly, but also wants to be taken seriously as a woman of the house. Yeah, I mean, she she is blossoming into a woman. She is she's she's not a girl, not yet a woman. Yes, she has uh, another line where she says, um, "I try to be imperious with the servants, but half the time I think they're laughing at me." And it's like when she's trying to be a commanding presence, and then five seconds later she starts giggling. Like she has that moment in the scene with Petra, where she says, "Like I absolutely forbid anyone to make fun of Henrik, except for me." And <laughs> it's she's like trying to be a, an adult, and she's like kind of getting there but she'll regress a lot. And right. And the problem is also that she's put in a position that she's not necessarily ready for, which is being the lady of the house. Exactly. Um, with a, with a co-pilot who's had decades more experience than she's had. Exactly. And is she's in a not different building a life. She's not building her own life. She's fitting into a pre-existing life. That doesn't exactly. She's, she's, she has been cast as a replacement in a production that has been running for a long time, a role that she's not really quite right for yet. Um, <laughs> Yeah, she yes. hasn't quite aged into her role, but damn well, she is not optioning up along the way. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but still, I think the show does a really good job with her. And then also one of my other favorite characters, just in terms of pure complexity, Charlotte. I was going to say, we we can't not go into a deep dive about Charlotte. In tr- like in truth, Charlotte, we could spend this entire episode about all the female roles in this show yes. because I want to talk about Charlotte. I want to talk about Desiree and I want to talk about Madame Armfeld. Yes. Uh, also, Frederica, like, let's take that moment. That's right. You know what? And while we're at it, the, the leader singers, but just the women. <laughs> the, le- the leader hosens. The leader hosens. So Charlotte. Charlotte yeah. is the wife of Count Carl Magnus, who is having the affair with Desiree. Uh, what is it about Charlotte that you love? And then on top of that, what is something you think is uh, a, a speed bump that a lot of people can get 
uh, when they try to portray this role. You know, like when like th- easy things that people can mess up. Yes. Well, I think the on the surface, what everyone loves about Charlotte is how she uses humor as a defense mechanism and yes. how sarcastic she is, how biting she is, and how funny she is. But the truth is all of these jokes that she makes are rooted in her deep, deep pain mm-hmm. in loving a man who is treating her like absolute garbage. And, you know, I think an easy trap to fall into with Charlotte is to fall into the humor and to not recognize uh, the, the, the complexity pain. of the pain and that the humor is... is um, not just covering it up, but as uh, a defense mechanism for it. Um, oh my God, she's so good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Charlotte, you always do say the most, am- uh, you always did say the most amusing things. I still do sometimes. I frequently laugh myself to sleep contemplating my own future, yeah. which is itself a h- hysterical and devastating Devastating, line. absolutely devastating. She, yeah, I mean, Every Day a Little Death is a song that shows all that pain. And then on top of that, to have Anne join her uh, and have no kind of uh, she kind of has no about. idea what she's talking about. <laughs> well, I think and and I think can relate to the emotions of not necessarily the complexities of it. Like she's like, I feel this right. even if I don't necessarily know the specifics of what you're talking about. Yeah, I think Anne is more uh, frustrated and confused by the concept of love than she is hurt and damaged by it in the way that Charlotte is. That is wonderfully accurate. She's in grad school, guys. <laughs> Please. But but you're absolutely right. Charlotte is such a meaty role in the sense that you have these amazingly funny lines that you can't just play up the deadpan of it all, right? You have to kind of find the hurt, but then also not make the hurt the the text, if that makes sense. Right, because it's buried. Yes. Um, something that I felt with the most recent revival, and I don't blame her because having also seen it in London, it was directed this way as well. Yeah. Aaron Who was Charlotte da- in the re- in the revival? Erin Davey. Oh, I love her. Well, I love her too. Her little Edie in Grey Gardens, amazing. We saw her do yeah. the final performance of that. Yes, we did. Jerry likes my corn. But Erin Davey in that production, she brought the hurt to the forefront with her Charlotte. Mm-hmm. It was a little too much of that. And as, I guess I'll bring it up now. So the whole reason I saw that production four times was because I saw it first at the Menier Chocolate Factory where it originated. Mm -hmm. And I remember not really liking it, but I liked Hannah Waddingham and I liked Maureen Littman. And when they announced it was coming to Broadway and they announced the cast, I was like, maybe the things I didn't like will be improved because there were things I did like. Mm-hmm. Maybe things I like will be improved. And this cast is so good. Yeah. And that happens a lot with uh, transfers from London to New York. They tend to work out the kinks in London so as to fix them by the time it gets yes, to New York. Because it's all very different sensibilities. Then what ended up happening- And very different things land in yes. uh, British audiences than they do in New York. 100%. And I saw the show about a month into its run, a month after it opened, with the entire original company, and I hated it. I mean, like, I'm, I'm talking, like, despised it from beginning to end. And- because everything I liked in London was changed and everything I hated in London was kept. Mm. And so I got very angry, especially because it was such a great cast and I was just watching them be put through the ringer of this bad interpretation. Yeah. And then, then they announced Bernadette Peters and Elaine Stritch. And I go, well, I don't think I'm ever going to see Elaine Stritch live on stage ever again. So I'll go see it. And this was uh-huh. about seven months later so things had changed by then and I go to see the show and Elaine Stritch is word perfect so I don't get a fuck up from Elaine (laughs) and not only are they good but the whole cast once they were allowed to kind of 
do their own thing with it. The I, the story I heard was basically once Trevor Nunn left over the course of those seven months, the cast was like, let's slowly go to what we all wanted to do. Yeah. And by the time Bernadette Peters and Elaine Stritch came in, that's where they were all at. And so the energy of the whole show had changed mm-hmm. and I was liking it so much more. And plus I was like, I just really loved Elaine Stritch's Madame Armfeld. So I, I was like, I'll see it a second, uh, another time with them. Yeah. So a production Elaine that Stritch I didn't like. Elaine the Madame Armfeld that we all deserve in the world. Absolutely. There's nothing really elegant about her Madame Armfeld, but she 100% got the humor and the, similar to Charlotte, the pain. Her wooden ring speech was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... I, yeah, I just really enjoyed her. Anyway, but so that was my thing with Aaron Davey. By the time Elaine Stritch came in, Aaron Davey was able to find that balance a bit better. But the first time I saw it, like that December when they opened, she it was like tears the entire time. And I mm-hmm. wanted to pull Trevor Nunn aside and be like, subtext, darling, subtext. Yeah, that's that's really tough for me. Because here's the thing, I'm actually going to contradict something that I said uh, earlier in us recording this, is that I love Little Night Music. I think it is a perfectly constructed musical. I don't think it is one of those shows that speaks for itself. I don't think it's one of those shows that if you just say the words on stage, it works. I think you do like, you can do Little Night Music wrong. Mm -hmm. You can make it boring. You can make it uninteresting. You can, if you miss the complexities of the depth because it's not, it doesn't hit hit you over the head with it. Mm -hmm. um, You can get it wrong and you can miss the point and it can feel long and droll. That's fair. I think when I say indestructible, what I mean is that the show, I I think it's really, really, really hard to make a little night music insufferable. It can be long, but there, yes. there are some songs and some moments, there are especially like a lot of Madame Armfeld and Charlotte lines that just no matter who says it, mm-hmm. get a laugh. Um, yes, yes, you know, that's definitely true. Um, it is funny. It's definitely funny. Um, the thing is, it doesn't, always um it doesn't necessarily hit you in the emotional core yes it you have to really work with your actors to get the emotion there because it is so tightly constructed and the and the dialogue can land so well it's it is i'll say i'll agree with you in a way that it's easy to uh short change night music it's Mm -hmm. hard to completely fuck it up in a way that yes. it's much easier to completely fuck up like Follies or Follies is an, is an impossible show. Uh, yeah, Follies <laughs> is like you're setting yourself up to fail. But you know what Follies I mean? Follies like, is a work study. And if you walk in loving musicals, you'll like it. If you walk in as an audience member, you might it, have a hard time. It's, it's very hard, but not impossible to make Follies work. It is very hard, but not impossible to fuck up night music. Correct. That is, I think that is what I would, the way I would describe it. I I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. Mother, forgive the delay. My schedule is driving me wild. But, uh, Mother, I really must run. I'm performing in Rotswick. And don't ask, where is it, please? How are you feeling today? And are you corrupting the child? Don't, Mother, the minute I'm done with performing in Rotswick, I'll come for a visit and argue Mayors with speeches, la, la, la. Children with posies, la, la, la. Half-empty houses, la, la, la. High-ho, the glamorous life. Uh, let's talk about sending the clowns for a bit. Okay. Because, you know. We, we, I feel like we, we, we can't not. We can't not. We, it's, it's the song. Fun fact. Fun fact. It is the last theater song to win Grammy of the Year. 
I didn't. Oh, so for song of the year. Yeah. For song that of is, the year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because, well. Did you say Grammy of the year? That's Grammy of the year. That's They discontinued that award. That's why it's no longer. Worth. That no. would be why. Yes. Yes. It, it. This has become the most popular Sondheim song in existence. Yeah. And there's. And just, he hates it. <laughs> Yeah, he hate, he hates that it's well. I don't think he doesn't hate that it's so popular. He's confused. He's embarrassed by it. He's embarrassed and, by the song and confused by its fame. Yes, and, and confused, yeah, by how successful it is because he's like sort of. He basically says, "Really, this is the one?" Like, because he also wrote it in an afternoon in a coffee shop down the street from the theater <laughs> for a woman who has a singing voice but can't sustain notes. He's like, yeah. and also who? Fun fact was the mom in Mar- in Mar- Mary Poppins. <laughs> Yes. Let's bring it up every five minutes to remind everyone that Charlotte learned something today. We are it's, constantly evolving beings. Learning yeah. is a beautiful thing. This song is such a wonderful monologue of a song and like the perfect uh, deflection. Does that make sense? Yes. Because what happens is at this point of the show, so Desiree is a woman who is older than many of the other women in this show, uh, which the show itself wears with a point of pride, mm-hmm. which I love. Um, any sniping that comes at her age comes from other women in the show that's used, again, as a defense mechanism. You know, no one in the show actually thinks of age as the worst thing. Uh, and- well, it's because she's a woman who is so fabulous, but she's also older, so that's what they have to latch on to to tear her down. Yes, and what I love is that Desiree, it doesn't get to Desiree that these women lash out at her age because she was like, yeah, and I'm still fucking both your husbands. What of it? Um, <laughs> yeah, there's actually, Desiree has one of the greatest comebacks, which is, I swear we're, I swear we're getting to send in the clowns. I fucking swear. <laughs> but I have the soundboard of uh, the opening night of the original Broadway company, as well as the audio from the Natasha Richardson concert. And this line never fails to completely slaughter, which is they're in the country and Charlotte has decided that she's going to get back at Desiree by her and Anne sort of teaming up. And uh, what's going to happen is Charlotte is going to seduce Frederick and Count Ma- uh, Carl Magnus is going to see and he's going to abandon Desiree and everyone's going to leave the country having abandoned Desiree because everyone's like, oh my God, I love my wife and fuck Desiree. Mm-hmm. So going forward, Charlotte's trying to seduce Frederick and they're at the dinner table and Charlotte's a little drunk and she says, she's saying very openly, oh, Anne, your husband's delightful. Uh, I'm going to monopolize him the whole weekend if you don't mind. And Anne goes, of course not, have at him, unless our hostess has other plans. And then Desiree goes, well, I did plan on seducing him into rolling the croquet lawn, but I'm sure he'll find the Countess far less exhausting. <laughs> and what makes it work is that up until that point, Charlotte and Anne have been trying to like get into these little like jabs in a Desiree for the last two minutes. And in retrospect, after that line from Desiree, we come to realize those jabs are nothing more than paper cuts. And then Absolutely. Desiree just comes in and decapitates Charlotte and it's glorious. Oh, and doesn't even break a nail in the process. Not literally, she says it so casually and doesn't mm-hmm. break a nail it, and probably has some wine and like, you know, touches her dress, which <laughs> Glynis Johns, there's a photo of the original production. Glynis Johns is in this fabulous red dress. like oh, As well she should be. Stunning, stunning, pure Scarlett O'Hara, red dress, fabulosity. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so she divulges to Frederick that the whole reason she brought him up there was when they got together and as she puts it, made love, she realized this could be a chance 
to have a life because I've come to realize that the way that I live, I don't, it's, there's not necessarily there's anything wrong with it, but I'm getting to a point where it's not enough and I can't put all my energy just into this. I would like something a little more to latch onto. Mm-hmm. And I think you're it. And I think, and she's, as she puts it, you might be in need of rescue as well, mm. which he is. And he acknowledges that he kind of is in need, but he says, I don't really want to, because he says, while I understand that I probably should be with you, I do love my wife in a way that I can't, maybe isn't perfect, but I can't leave her. And as far as he's aware, he's Anne's whole world. Little does he know that she's literally about to fuck his son on the lawn five minutes later. (laughs) That's a whole other point. (laughs) That's a whole other story. But in that moment, that's where he's at. And the moment he says, however, then this like lone oboe starts to play. And the moment he says, however, Desiree's soul just is crushed because here's someone who's probably the only person she's ever truly loved come back into her life after all these years, most definitely the father of her child, despite the fact that she never- You mean the one with the same name as him? Yes. And she even says like, oh, Frederick, how conceited of you to think you're the only Frederick I've ever fucked. And it's like, (laughs) just the timeline matches up. Desiree, that's yeah. all it is. The so, rec- does that. so does that. So does the nose. <laughs> so does the nose. Yes. How about the fact that we both that she's the female version of me, Desiree? Receipts <laughs> show me the receipts. But so, she then goes into the song "Sending the Clowns," where she basically says, uh, she tries to deflect and say, "Oh well, isn't life funny that way? It's all one big romantic comedy, one big comedy of manners." And I uh, send on, send on the the comedic relief now because well you actually do you know what the phrase send of the clowns actually is it's a circus thing yes. whenever something goes wrong in the circus they send the clowns on to distract the audience from the giant mistake that was just made yes while they're cleaning up the bodies that fell from the high wire they send on the clowns to distract everybody exactly so it's like oh how great my life is an actual sh- actual shit let's send the clowns and just smile and laugh over it Mm-hmm. Which is a great metaphor for what this entire show has been, which is laughs and jokes covering up all of the pain and confusion that all of these characters have been feeling. Yes, because during that whole dinner that we just talked about where Desiree says the line to end all lines, Henrik explodes and like shatters his glass and basically is like, what's wrong with all of you? Like you're being, you're all being awful and ridiculous. And Desiree says to him like, wouldn't it be easier to just laugh at all of us? which is what everyone does. And he's like, how can I do that? Look at you. And in that next scene with Frederick, she's like, he's right. Like we don't fool him. And what are we laughing about? And it's all kind of just so sad when you really think about it. Mm-hmm. That line from Hedwig where it's a, uh, I laugh cause I'll cry if I don't. And right. yeah, right. it's all, it's all that really. When we talk about, you know, hashtag single life on Instagram, it's just to say, I cry myself to sleep sometimes hugging my pillow, pretending it's a human being, but I'll go on Instagram half naked with a bowl full of ice cream and a glass of white wine and say hashtag single life to laugh at myself. Exactly. Isn't it rich? Isn't it bliss? Don't you approve? One who keeps tearing around, one who can't move. Where are the Send in the clouds Just when I stopped Opening doors Finally no 
it's so um on paper simple in the sense that you know <laughs> if you are looking at like all of the lyrics of all of the songs on one sheet of paper it's it's a, it's a small it's a short paragraph compared mm. to a weekend in the country or now or any of those um but yeah i mean it, it 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 is um i don't know everything that you said is just like completely completely right uh it does have one of my favorite uh misheard lyrics which I feel like we should talk about. I think it's actually not in uh, the original Send in the Clowns, but actually in the reprise. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite uh, misheard lyric is, um, was that a fart? <laughs> my fault, I fear. <laughs> <laughs> you really do live with boys, don't you? <laughs> oh God, I have not aged at all. Nope. Uh, that's why you're just waiting for a fine 18 year old poet to marry. Girl, life is what you do while you're waiting to play Desiree Armfeld. In my yeah. case, Madame Armfeld. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, God, what I would give to play that role. <laughs> Can um, you be my Desiree? <laughs> I'll absolutely be the I mean, Madame my, Armfeld. My Madame Armfeld. <laughs> you're Desiree 100%. No, it's, it is this wonderful song. And it is a weird anomaly in that literally the more you try to sing it the worse it comes off yes uh it's it's the way that this song works is in its simplicity because mm -hmm. so much of the depth and complexity of the song is there already um which is why it's one of those songs that um i don't love most people's performance of it because it can become self-indulgent mm -hmm. very easily and it's actually very uh, similar to Charlotte. If you play, it's that balance of you have to bleed. You have to have your emotions be so on your sleeve, but you also can't play at the emotions because then you're doing the song for it, uh, if that makes sense. Yes. You can't show your full deck of cards, but every now and then one's got to kind of slip out and yeah. and grab it again. Because the, the metaphor of Send in the Clowns is she's not completely breaking down. She's mm -hmm. still holding it together. She is still Desiree. She is still this glamorous woman, but she's cracking and she is crumbling. Mm -hmm. She's trying desperately not to fully fall apart. Yes. Um, which is why she's like, you know, send in the clowns, send in the clowns. I'm, 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 it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. Yeah. And <laughs> but it hasn't happened yet. Yes. You and there's, and there's two moments where she goes, uh, there are, uh, quicksand and the clowns first she says don't bother they're here and that there's there's a lot of bitterness and a little bit of rage when judy dench does it she does it with full-on rage she's like don't bother i'm like okay lady <laughs> that lady. was a good judy that was Thank a good you. Day, judy i do a much better judy than I, I i do a much better judy dench than judy garland <laughs> are we going to talk about this again <laughs> we're obviously talking about this again you know who i do perfectly is judy kuhn um <laughs> You haven't lived till you heard my nobody side, Hanny. But she, there's, there's this, there's this bitterness to that. Don't bother. And then the final one, which is well, maybe next year. Mm -hmm. There's this sort of sigh of sadness that you can't really overindulge. You just kind of have to live in it. And Glynis Johns does it so perfectly with this sort of, well, mm -hmm. maybe. It's a sigh. Yeah, it's just it comes with life. You know, that sort of yeah. letting it roll off like water off a duck's back. Oh, water off a duck's back, water off a duck's back. <laughs> Thanks, Jinx Monsoon. <laughs> Which, but it, it, it's that. And it's sort of, it's almost like the mantra she's telling herself so she can eventually believe it. 
mm-hmm. while she hasn't started to believe it yet. Um, yeah, she's someone who lives in a, a fantasy version of life because that's her protected state. Yes. Again, hi-ho, the glamorous life. It's just a beautiful hi-ho. song. Indeed. And, and I prefer it when actresses do it than when full-on singers do it. Exactly. I mean, it's it's not written for a singer. Exactly. Yes, it's a simplistic song, but it's not simple. Exactly. Um, it's yeah. deeply complex. And it's and it, but it honestly, takes a really good actor to get all of that because it's not inherently on the page. Exactly. And when you when it connects that way, honestly, this song devastates me more than pretty much any other breakup song in musical theater. Mm-hmm. I know that I know I know our generation is all about last five years, and I love last five years. I don't cry listening to last five years. I don't really cry listening to Sending the Clowns, but I'm more moved by Sending the Clowns than I am by Still Hurting. Uh, well, also still hurting is at the start of the show. So, you know, you're not really in it yet, but um, I'm always in it. I wake up in it, Charlotte. <laughs> See, I cry more during Goodbye Till Tomorrow than I do during Still Hurting, but that's that's a separate. I cry during Schmool Song because I'm like, isn't it over yet? <laughs> oh my God. No, I actually really do like that song. Um, <laughs> I get, I actually get really emotional when he takes out the watch. That's when I, that's the it's one very, time I get emotional. It's, it's very, very sweet. Uh, Cause you're like, oh, it does have a point. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you finally got there. Glad we finally got there, JRB. Thanks. Way to go, Jamie. Uh, but no, it's very, it's like how Bartlett says on West Wings, you know, I come a family where if you can use one word to say what you can say in 10, you're not working hard enough. <laughs> Where if you can say if you can say one word that takes ten, you're not working hard enough. Uh, no, if if you if you can use uh, one word, what you can all we can rather say in ten words, you're not working hard enough. You're not working hard enough to articulate your point. Got it. Um, I'm also probably uh, deeply misquoting that line, uh, but the sentiment is there. Yes, I think <laughs> I think there's a there's a middle ground to be had of if you can if you're saying one word when you could say ten, you're not working hard enough. But also, it's sometimes- harder to be simple than it yeah. is. To, to yeah. get your point across in one sentence than 10 takes a lot of effort. And if you can do it, it's really yeah. profound. Just why um, it's much harder to write a cover letter than it is uh, to write an essay. 100%. The last song that I really want to get into with this show, because um, honestly, I could talk about honest, this whole score forever and ever and yeah. ever. Uh, I, I haven't even gotten to The Glamorous Life, which has my favorite lyric in the whole thing, which we'll get to in the Ooh. rapid fire. And it's not even because it's a clever lyric. It's just the we'll get to it we'll get to it i swear to god we'll get to it but i do love the glamorous life the song i want to talk about which is honestly it is this song does prep you for butt stuff because it starts with a finger then two then three and then eventually gives you all six inches of what you're packing which is the miller son am i Uh, wrong I don't think I would have used those same words to describe it, but since you've said it, I can't refute that. Well, famously, Charlotte Maltby does not have the same experience with butt stuff as I do. So (laughs) (laughs) that has been uh, historically documented. Yes, it has been, which isn't a commentary on Charlotte Maltby. It's a commentary on me. Yes, indeed. (laughs) As, as a human being who uh, desires to be Ariel from the little mermaid, I can't walk down the street without talking about butt stuff. Mm. <laughs> mm. bad stuff so the miller son it's uh-huh. very brave for a show that is this long to give its 11 o'clock number to a character who has not really been the focus of anything exactly that's one really and out yeah why do we love it why do we love the song so much why do we love the why do we love the song why do we love that it's petra singing it 
Well, I, I, I can talk around, I can talk both for and against this point uh, at many, many times. I love the Miller's son and I love Petra. I do have a lot of uh, questions as to uh, the benefits and detriments of it at this point in the show. Sure. Um, I think, well, Petra is a great foil to everyone else in the show in the sense that a lot of the show is about, you know, status in society and relationships and Petra does not live by those rules or play those games. Uh, so she's like a great example of, you know, whereas um, Anne feels sort of stuck into this, this role of being uh, a wife in a society, a societal marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Petra is not bound by those rules. So therefore she's able to have these greater experiences and is therefore able to experience this freedom um, that can lead to such rich uh, fantasies. Yes, yes. Um, I think what's interesting about the structure of the song is that she starts every verse, you know, I shall marry first the Miller's son, then the second verse is the businessman, then it's the Prince of Wales. And then it ends with, and I, because there's or I shall marry. And then the final one is like, and I shall marry the Miller's son. She knows what her she life's going to be. Place. She knows her place. She knows what's going to happen. Yes. Um, but the meat of the song is the, is the pattern. The not, the, not the pattern. Yeah. The meanwhile. Yes. And then meanwhile. it gets into the, and then it gets into the drive where um, she talks about sort of why she lives the way she lives, mm-hmm. why she's a more sexually adventurous and free woman. Uh, it happens right after she's had a tryst with Madame Armfelt's uh, servant, Frid. And first of all, yes, fun- the unsung hero, Fred, <laughs> poor Fred, who had a song and then it got cut Pour some out for the homies who couldn't make it. Yes, it is. It is very brave of them to put this song here at this moment because it's right mm-hmm. before everything starts to wrap up. Yeah. And, um, and it's also right before everyone's kind of ready for things to wrap up, because like I said, send of the clowns, 1045 number. But you think it's the 11 o'clock number, but you haven't checked your watch yet. Exactly. And it's you think. Okay, we're getting to the end of the evening. Things have start have got to start wrapping up really soon. And then we get a nearly four-minute song. And on paper, I can understand the cons of that. It's something where in when I watch the show, and I have seen some bad Miller sons. Of course this, you have. Because, because everyone thinks they can sing it. <laughs> everyone thinks they can sing it and everyone thinks they can act it. And a lot of people also mistake it for a sensual number, which it's not. It's about the benefits and the mind uh, and the mentality of being sensual and being mm-hmm. sexually open and free but it's not itself a sexual song correct um, it's, which, it's about freedom yeah the freedom is about choice yes it's all about choice and it's all about you know why this particular character does what she does which is to say life is fleeting and you only get the goods for an even shorter amount of time so you better live your damn life. Yeah, L- live it the way that you feel fit, which isn't to say like, oh, fuck everything that moves, but rather, you know, don't be constrained by what people tell you you should do. If what you, if you, there's something you want to do and it doesn't necessarily harm somebody else, what's, you know, again, what is the harm? It's a very short way from the fling that's for fun to the thigh pressing under the table. It's a very short day till you're stuck with just one or it has to be done on the sly. In the meanwhile, there are mouths to be kissed before mouths to be fed. And there's many a tryst and there's many a bed. There's a lot I'll have missed, but I'll not have been dead when I die. And a person should celebrate everything. 
even when I see a bad version of this song, in when it's being done in the show, I it just makes sense to me. You know, it just sort of fits. Again, it's one of those things where you look at it objectively and you're like, well, shouldn't we really be like getting to the end point? Do we really need to take a pit stop for this character? And I'm like, I love that we kind of take a pit stop for this character. We do. And also this is a moment that actually ends up being the crux of the show. This is really what the show is about. Yeah. And it's also, it's a, it's such a great song to have right after Send the Clowns mm-hmm. because it's the other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's the woman who um, is, is laughing at the irony of all the things that didn't happen. And this is a woman who's living in the possibility of all the things that can Yes. And it's important that they are at different parts of their lives. Exactly. And Petra is probably the only character in the show with this song. She proves that she's really the only character in the show who's keenly aware of everything that could happen and what probably will happen Mm -hmm. and using it to justify how she goes forward for probably the next 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Sleeping with Henrik, sleeping with Fred, uh, sleeping with other men or doing whatever else it is that she does. And it's that kind of confidence that I just love. And again, it shows how Night Music respects its character so much that it allows Petra this moment to reflect and have, uh, I don't know, this, this, this platform, for lack of a better term. No, that's exactly the right term. It's, it's just, I don't know, I just think it's great. And I know you know this from uh, reading Finishing the Hat, but Sondheim says the term uh, celebrate what passes by came from George Firth's daughter. George Firth, who wrote the book for Company, they were sell because her birthday, I guess, falls around Christmas or maybe it's on Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Sondheim asked her one year when she was like eight or nine. So have you, I guess like each year she gets to decide like if it's, if they're going to celebrate Christmas or her birthday, like is like, is the 25th going to be a birthday celebration or are we having Christmas? And so she always- a thing to ask of a child. Yeah. But I guess, you know, it's the 70s. No, it's darling. It's darling. Yeah. And also it's nice to sort of like Petra, she gets to have the choice. Yeah. Um, so there's Which something- is, I think the most important thing you can give any human, especially a child. Yeah. Well, and I think what's what on the sweet side of it is like, we don't want Christmas to eclipse your birthday, but we also don't want your birthday to like overpower Christmas because Christmas is very much a family affair. It's for so, everyone. Yes. Um, but we don't want you to feel like your birthday doesn't matter. So every year you get to decide like, which is the event. Mm-hmm. Um, and one year Sondheim said like, so have you decided if it's going to be your birthday or Christmas? And she goes, I want to celebrate everything that passes by. And Sondheim's like, that's a lyric and just like mentally put like, in great and now I shall marry the Miller's son <laughs> yes it's similar to Tina Fey's you know five-year-old daughter going I want to go to there and Tina Fey's like great I'm gonna take that and make money off of that oh my god that I did not know and yes. that I love it's 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 what made the edge ju- it's what justified the edge saying my son said turn off the dark and I went great that's the title for spider-man and everyone's like, why did you listen to your five-year-old son? And it's like, well, Sondheim listened to a seven-year-old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so real. Um, yeah, I just love this song. There are mouths to be kissed before mouths to be fed. Um, there's a lot I'll have missed, but I'll not have been dead when I die. It's just... Uh, I think about that um, every time I, I shy away from doing things. <laughs> but I'll not have been dead when I die. I'll not well, have been dead when I die. Yeah. It just, and it hurts. I'm going to celebrate everything passing by. So it's good. just fucking... I don't know. It's a show... This is a show where... The more you think about it and the more you listen to it and and the more you kind of delve deep into it, it's a, it just constantly makes you go, fuck me. Like, it's yeah. it's great. It's so, and I feel like people don't, 
I feel like it doesn't get its uh, proper due sometimes because it's not like a Sweeney or a Follies in that like echelon of musical theater. But mm-hmm. yes, but this is a this is the song that girls sing from this show. Yes. You know, this is the audition song. This is the song that you can take into an audition room, whereas uh, you can't really uh, bring in. Uh, yes. So let's, perpetual anticipation. Yes. So let's wrap it up. Uh, the show opens. Uh, it actually gets pretty strong reviews. Clive Barnes, the New York Times, loves it. It's the first time that he loves the Sondheim show. And from then on in, he will love all Sondheim shows. Some reviewers are like, ah, I liked Follies more. And Sondheim's like, fuck you. You didn't like well, Follies last time. Where were you? Yeah, where were you? Where a were year you? Ago? Where were you a year ago? But it ends up working out in their favor. This is, the show becomes a big hit. It runs a year and a half, uh, makes its money back, has a national tour, a movie version. It wins uh, six Tony Awards, including Best Musical and Best Score. Uh, can you guess what its other big competition was this year? No, tell me. All right. Pippin. Oh, wow. Sugar. Uh, and don't bother me, I can't cope. Uh, although for score, it was much ado about nothing, not sugar. Don't bother me, I can't cope. Something that's interesting with Sondheim, on this we're pushing through the rest of this legacy, is that for a lot of his Hal Prince musicals, there's always another musical written by a black artist about the experience of being an African-American in this, in this country. And it's always sort of overshadowed by whatever the Sondheim show is. Huh, interesting. Why would that be a pattern in our industry? Mm-hmm. Well, and someone was like, well, what about Hallelujah, Baby? And I was like, well, that was written by white people. Uh, <laughs> like, so these are shows that are written by African-American artists. Very different. Yes, very, um, yes. Very, 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 so very, it's very different. Yes, although it is interesting that Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope actually runs a full year longer than Night Music, but does not have any kind of legacy after the fact. It's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know much about that show. Yeah, it's it's an interesting score. I think it's because it's not a score that's as accessible as, say, Night Music or Pippin. People don't think sure. about it as much. Um, yeah, the show gets a bunch of different productions. London, National Tours, as we said, has the production at the National Theater of the Judy Dench, the Menyard Chocolate Factory, uh, which then transfers here with Bernadette and Elaine Search replacing it after the fact. Um, the big thing about this show is that Send in the Clowns is the big Sondheim hit, and this is like his biggest moneymaker up until this point. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is something that we get from night music in the realm of musical theater? Like, what does it leave us? Uh, well, one thing that we really get is that this is a perfect musical in terms of its structure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a well-written book. It has great, great songs and it is, and every character has their moment and it's just solid, fantastic, great. The question of whether or not, um, it speaks to any higher importance. It doesn't really hit as home for me as some other shows. Mm -hmm. But I think the legacy is that it's probably one of the most, like this is a Sondheim show that most people will be able to sit through. (laughs) Very much so. As opposed to Pacific Overtures. (laughs) Or some people might be like, ah. Yeah, oh, okay then. I don't know, for me, I love watching stories about people who are complex and relatable because that tends to move me more than the ones that are like of a higher calling which is maybe why i'm loving this a bit more than say pacific overtures or anyone can whistle um i think i've also just gotten to the point where i am now less interested in uh stories about romance mm -hmm. Uh, I'm, i'm less interested in love stories than i am about um something higher deeper or or richer than that sure my personal taste I, I get that. I don't find this, because it's Hal Prince and he's like, we wanted to do a romantic musical. I weirdly don't find the show all that romantic. 
That's um, fair. It's very heady. Because they there were literally lines of like, love's a dirty business, a humiliating business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's how how foolish people can be and how uh, desperate people can be when they're in love. But it, it, it plays it in a way that's uh, palatable. Yes. And on top of all that, it has the greatest role for a woman over the age of 70 in musical theater, which is that of Madame Armfelt, Desiree's mother, who has all the most amazing lines. That's the line that I opened this podcast with. Uh, <laughs> she has other ones like, don't smush your bosoms against the chair, dear. You'll stunt their growth. Then where would you be? It's just, she's just phenomenal. Just so good. And has this great monologue about the wooden ring where she tells her granddaughter about like, what's it all about? You know, I have all these wonderful things. I've lived longer than I ever thought past my peers. And I think back about the one man who could have been the love of my life, but he gave me a wooden ring. And I thought to myself, no man who respects you will give you a wooden ring. He'll give you a diamond ring. So out he went and now I'll never know. And Who's Very stars in the moon. Exactly. Very stars in the moon. Um, yeah. Uh, final, 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 final thoughts on night okay. music. Uh, my final thought is a simple but mighty one. I fucking hate you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just th- like, I never think, you know, when I think of Sondheim, I don't necessarily think, mm, yes, romantic operettas. Uh, but it's just a great example of how Sondheim really can do whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> Truly, truly. And this show gives him sort of a blank check uh, for future shows where I'm listening to that podcast blank check about directors in Hollywood who have early success and then get a blank check like a James Cameron, Robert Zemeckis. This is the show that ends up getting Sondheim his blank check. And boy, does he use it for Pacific Overtures. Um, (laughs) We didn't really uh, talk very much about the the music of Night Music. We definitely talked more about characters and words. So I just feel like we do have to take a brief moment to talk about the the use of themes and variations, both musically and in terms of the character of trios, Mm -hmm. Uh, both how like the show is like mostly in waltz and there are the three couples and there's all of the and yeah. although there aren't it actually drives me crazy that there are five not six sleepless leaders sure <laughs> I'm like, that, it should be six <laughs> it should be six yeah i don't know uh, why that is yeah. um but they do say three was like a very important number because it's all these love triangles and hugh wheeler even like created a diagram for sondheim of like how each love triangle is connected mm-hmm. um and it's just really wonderful on top of this ingmar bergman really did love the show they invited him to see it and because Bergman wanted to work on a musical movie with Sondheim and Sondheim's like, before you want to work with me, you need to see what we did with your show, because if you don't like it, you might not want to work with me. So they see it. And Bergman's like, it's beautiful. It's not my movie, but it's absolutely beautiful. And mm-hmm. Sondheim's like, that's the greatest compliment I could hear. Then years later, they do it in New York City Opera and an opera critic's like, Bergman would puke if he saw what this show was. And Sondheim wrote him a personal letter. He's like, he actually really liked it. And I can show you the letter he sent me afterwards saying so. And the critic didn't respond. Oh, and a shocking turn of events. Yes. And people will hear more about the music as we, as I edit this episode and I put songs throughout, they'll hear the gorgeous, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous score. And it's orchestrated so perfectly. He, Sondheim wanted Jonathan Tunick to make it sound like the first spritz of perfume in the air. Just like mm. very, uh, that kind of aroma. That's Rapid great. fire questions. The Sondheim rhyme. What's your favorite lyric in the show? Okay. Well, my favorite rhyme uh, is no, not even figs, raisins, ah, liaisons. Very good rhyme. Uh, it's, but, favorite, it's, but favorite lyric would be the one from now, you'd say? Yes, yes. Uh, although uh, a runner up would be uh, it's intolerable being tolerated. I love that one too. And ah, how you promised and ah, how I lied. My favorite one is The Glamorous Life when Desiree's writing to her mother. She goes, um, I'm performing in Rudvik and don't ask where is it, please. <laughs> because it is 
a very funny and also it just captures that entire tone of their relationship of like she's always performing her mother doesn't care for it and anytime she's like i'm doing this thing her mother's like what the fuck is that like always kind of undermining her daughter's achievements and so it's her daughter kind of uh getting ahead of her mother and all this stuff and before you say well what kind of mother would undermine her daughter's achievements madame armfelt's the same woman who said stage managers are not nannies they don't have the talent <laughs> I will say uh, along those lines, I also do love uh, with performing in Rodfick, I'll come for a visit and argue. Yes, I'll come. I'll come for a visit and argue. The perfect planning to visit your mother. <laughs> Arguing is on the schedule. Yes, that, I love all of Desiree's letters. It's the just one, so good. Her letter the mother, you spoiling the child. Don't. Don't. Um, <laughs> and to Frederica is amazing where she says like, uh, mother is getting a plaque from the Helsingborg Arts Council Amateur Theater Group. Well, whether it's funny or not, like. Oh, she, she knows it's ridiculous. She's getting a lifetime achievement award for this random ass community theater somewhere. Amazing. It's wonderful. But um, it. God, that's good. Where does the show rank for you in the canon of Sondheim? Okay. So if we're talking personally, I'd actually put it like number six. It's Interesting. not my top five. And I sort as I mentioned before, I think it's, it's, it's such a well-written musical, but it doesn't hit as home for me as some of his other shows do. Um, shows like Sunday, which I, you know, expands my capacity to feel and like speaks to my uh, aura as an artist. What's that uh, like? <laughs> it's great. It's fun. Um, I also just like, like I mentioned, I love Pacific Overtures, but also Sweeney Into the Woods and Merrily uh, are also shows that just mean a lot to me personally. Um, sure. And they're, they're ones that I, I walk away feeling very changed and feeling very full of thought. Whereas I leave uh, night music going, mm, that's a great show. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. So an, on an emotional level, it is like number six, even though objectively you're aware that it is one of the better constructed ones. Yes, yes. If we're talking about just like the list of Sondheim shows that mean things personally to me. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely. Um, I had a dream cast. Who would you love to see in this show? Your Desiree or Charlotte? Okay, so <laughs> uh, I really, really want to see Olivia Coleman as Desiree. <laughs> oh! Oh! Ooh! Something that just went right in, didn't it? That just oh went God. right in. <laughs> Think about that. Who doesn't want to see that Send in the Clowns? My fucking God. And also, if your butt's ready for this one, Allison Janney is Charlotte. Interesting. I love that. I need my Charlotte to be a little younger than my Desiree. Okay. I mean, I guess- She would be a phenomenal yes. Charlotte. Okay. I think, I'm thinking Allison Janney, Circle West Wing. Perfect. Love it. Let's yeah. do it. I think um, you're right. I did not consider the fact that- uh, that was I mean, uh, in the nineties. Yes, but she, but she's, but she would be so good that you almost, it almost kind of uh, surpasses that. But yes, that's just, that's yeah. a nitpicky thing for me. Uh, mm -hmm. Final one, because our Sondheim musicals tend to come back to New York downsized every time. That's how they get produced. This section is called uh, "It's the Little Things," aka there won't be trumpets. How I would had you... no idea what this meant. <laughs> well, because there won't be any trumpets in the in the uh in the orchestra that's why okay. um uh, yes every time I, I i find that i have to explain to the guests every time why i named it this yeah uh, and i should have asked but instead i didn't think about it but i did explain what the question was which is how would you downsize the show oh yeah i did not see that uh in the you're not reading you my said. emails my no, 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 no it wasn't in the email it was uh <laughs> uh 
just it just the 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 clarification was there will be trumpets and I was like I don't know what this means yeah. uh so how would you downsize the show uh well I'm also I'm of the mind that I no longer need to see a literal set ever again um <laughs> I I I never want to see a play that takes place in a very realistic looking apartment um and you know the entire second act of the show takes place in one location I really don't need much give me like some set pieces and some like chirping of birds and I'm like great we're in the woods uh fair um is that is that what you mean in terms of uh yeah I mean, that how like how would you make this or say how would you uh yeah sl- simplify this show as possible to produce so setting the whole thing in the woods which is essentially what they did in the original but minus all the sliding panels minus the chairs minus the bread yeah the show really speaks for itself and it doesn't need much it doesn't call for much because it's more about the people and the communications than it is about any location you can allude to anything with lights and with uh, set pieces rather than any large set. I'm gonna pro- I'm gonna produce a production this summer with a fully vaccinated cast on the Great Lawn in Central Park. And, and you absolutely could do that. Yes, you do need fierce costumes. You cannot skimp on the oh, costumes. Absolutely, and a full red dress for Desiree, but no absolutely. no other f- furniture. Um, Charlotte, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, this is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> It was so much fun. I have to let you get back to the rest of your life. Uh, I I have a research paper to write. Yes, you do. And I have TV to watch. Um, but thank I hold you so- a glamorous life. I hold a glamorous life. Make sure you guys check back next week when we discuss Pacific Overtures, the real blank check for Sondheim. Charlotte, where can people find you on social media if they want to find you? I am at Seamalts on Instagram, and that's really all I use. Perfect. You, you can find me on Instagram at Matt Koplick, usual spelling. If you like this podcast, you can uh, review it. You can subscribe. You can rate it. Five stars as always, because that algorithm could not be more real. Don't ask me how math is. It just is. Uh, and yeah, that's really it today. Again, make sure to check us next week for Pacific Overtures. I think for our diva, night music diva, to close us out, uh, we should go with... Um, you know what? Because I have the emotional connection, Miss Vicky Mallory, Victoria Mallory, she'll close us out as our diva for today. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Thank you, Charlotte. And thank you, Vicky. This is it. <laughs> I have no other, nothing left to say. Bye! And parks and bridges, ponds and zoos, ruddy faces, muddy shoes, light and noise and bees and Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org, because only together we rise.